Welcome to the Eyes on Retina, the podcast series by Boeinger Ingelheim. Vision loss caused by retinal disease can have a devastating impact on the lives of those affected, their families, and society as a whole. 2.2 billion people worldwide have vision impairment or blindness, of which at least 1 billion could have been prevented. In this series, we hear from a range of retinal experts involved in the care of people living with retinal disease, as well as people living with these devastating conditions. My name is Professor Peter Kaiser. I am the Cheney Family Endowed Chair in Ophthalmology Research at the Cleveland Clinic's Cole Eye Institute, and I am a retina specialist working on retinal diseases for over 25 years. And today I will be hosting this episode of Eyes on Retina, All Eyes on Stargardt. Stargardt disease is the most common form of inherited retinal degeneration, which affects individuals at a very young age. It is often diagnosed in childhood or adolescence. However, in some cases, the diagnosis may not be established until adulthood. But before we delve too deeply into Stargardt disease, I'd like to pause and introduce today's guests. I am joined by Professor Henrik Scholl, who has a wealth of experience in working with people living with Stargardt disease and its complications. He has authored over 150 articles in journals as well as received numerous prestigious awards, including most recently the Paul Henke Memorial Award by the Maculous Society. Welcome, Professor Scholl. A pleasure to be here. We are also joined today by Katrina Dunn, who worked at the patient advocacy organization Fighting Blindness Ireland. Katrina was herself diagnosed with Stargardt disease at the age of 19, so she has first-hand experience of what it's like living with this retinal disease. Welcome, Katrina. Hi, how are you? It's lovely to talk to you. So in order for those listening to get to know us a little better, I'd like to do sort of a lighthearted question about our senses. As sight is one of our so-called five senses, I'm going to ask each one of you, which other sense, hearing, touch, smell, taste, is most important to you and why? So Peter, I'm, I'm happy to kick this off by saying that for myself, it is clearly hearing. And by the way, this is what we are using right now. I'm talking and that speech is being understood and it's the vehicle of the way people now learn about Stargardt disease we are discussing today. Hearing plays a big part, not as big as vision in the human brain, but it's a rather big part. I would say hearing as well, because my vision is compromised, I rely on it an awful lot to provide me with information that most other people who are fully sighted would get from their vision. So, for example, if I'm crossing the road, my depth perception and my distance vision are very poor. So I would rely on my hearing a lot there to kind of tell me how close a car is and kind of cross the road. I couldn't agree more. I think if you would ask anyone what the most important senses would be, I think vision is probably number one, but certainly hearing would be number two. So I think now we'll move on to the topic of today's discussion, which is Stargardt disease. And many of our listeners may not know what this disease represents. Professor Scholl is an expert in this area and uh, has done extensive research in the disease. Could you give us a little overview of what Stargardt disease is and your research into some of the prevalence of the disease? I'm very happy to. So Stargardt disease is called Stargardt disease because it was coined by Dr. Carl Stargard with his complicated name, with DT at the end, who described his condition 1909, about 112 years ago, in a family 
that was affected by a disease of the macula. And the macula uh, is the part of the retina that is in the very center. And fortunately, but for patients affected, unfortunately, the macula is superior to other parts of the retina. And if affected, leads to significant reduction of vision and almost inevitably to legal blindness. It's a very prominent inherited condition amongst all the inherited conditions we see in clinic. It is inherited as an so-called autosomal recessive trait. Recessive means that affected patients need to inherit one affected allele by their mother and one affected allele by their father. So they must have on both alleles, we all have two copies of every gene in our body, they must have mutations in both of these alleles in order to be affected. The disease is somewhat variable in onset, typically starts in adolescence and then progressively leads to degenerative processes in the central retina, in the macula, that then turn into visual dysfunction and eventually legal blindness. As I mentioned, there's a large difference in manifestation when it, the disease starts. There are case reports of patients becoming symptomatic at age five or so. And I personally have seen asymptomatic patients with the disease that were older than 70, meaning that it can also be very mild, but this is certainly atypical, but it's part of the spectrum. It is important to mention that the underlying gene with the complicated name ABCA4, which was found to be the causative gene in 1997, and that gene is the most common disease genes of all disease genes that affect the retina. So it's by far the most common autosomal recessive gene that is known in our field. It was found by research that we just recently published from IOB, which is the Institute in Basel, that the prevalence of Stargardt is pretty much exactly one case in six and a half thousand people. So that qualifies as being a rare condition, so-called orphan disease, but it's not that rare. It's quite a prevalent disease, but it is also something that is not as prevalent as age-related macular degeneration. That's a wonderful overview. Katrina, we'd like to hear more about your story. When you were diagnosed, which is around the age of 19, what did you first notice about your vision, that, that something wasn't quite right? Well, I suppose I started to notice issues a couple of years before that. It would have been just quite subtle at first. So seeing the blackboard in school would have become a little bit of a problem for me. I would have gone to the optometrist and just been diagnosed as being slightly short-sighted. Gotten glasses for that, which made a slight improvement because I am slightly short-sighted as well. But then continued to have problems with seeing the board in school as time went on, continued to visit optometrists. And I suppose that's probably around 2001, actually. So optometrists on the high street wouldn't have had the imaging equipment um, and different diagnostic tools that they have now. So really, there wasn't a lot that they could do other than visual acuity tests and things like that. They couldn't see anything wrong with my eyes at the time. 
I mean, in retrospect, knowing what I know now, having worked in the area for so long, obviously the first thing that they should have done is refer me on to somebody else. I should have seen an ophthalmologist straight away when they couldn't figure out what the problem was, but that wasn't done. And I just continued to have problems with my vision that were not diagnosed. I got a lot of feedback that maybe I was looking for attention being a teenager you know typical things like that and um, it was only then at a much later stage that and I think this is in a case in many many rare disease areas that parents perseverance will drive a lot of diagnosis and healthcare and just getting to see the right people and all of those things because a parent will know that there's something not right so my mother works in a pharmacy which a community ophthalmologist visited once a month I think and she spoke to her and asked her to have a look and of course the ophthalmologist knew there was something wrong straight away and she referred me to a a consultant in University Hospital in Limerick in in Ireland and the consultant that I saw she did whatever test that she needed to do and she diagnosed it straight away and obviously she had seen it before. It's quite a long road to getting a diagnosis and it was a strange experience because it had never really occurred to me that there would be something wrong with my vision that couldn't be fixed. So there's a bit of relief there to finally knowing, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. But the just massive shock of hearing then there's nothing can be done about it and there's no treatments and there's nothing you can do was just, I it's, it's just a sucker punch. Like I can't even explain the feeling of that because it just had never, ever occurred to me that it would be something that wasn't treatable or just couldn't easily be fixed with the right glasses or something else like that. I just had no experience of that area or a vision impairment or of anything like that. And I never knew that there was vision impairment of all different levels. You know, I thought people were either sighted or they were blind and had a cane or a guide dog. And I never knew about this whole spectrum in between. So, yeah, it was quite a shock. I can imagine. And your story is not unique in this field, right? So Professor Scholl, are her symptoms how you get patients into your clinic? What are some of the other symptoms people may want to look out for? I think that this is the typical symptom, blurriness of vision, central blind spot. The individual feel that the center is affected rather than the periphery. This is fairly typical. And because the macula, as I mentioned earlier, is this specialized You can call it even a separate organ within the retina, right in the very center. This is where the symptoms are. And because our sense of seeing is so much dependent on this very center for fine detail vision, such as reading and such as recognizing faces. And those two symptoms are the most prevalent by far when we see patients. Also, patients complain about delayed dark adaptation. They have difficulties in the dark, but it is by far not as prominent as uh, visual acuity problems. Katrina's story that she went to optometrists in some people who may not have seen this disease before is also a very common story. And and unfortunately in children, as she mentioned, people look at you and say, you know, maybe you're just making this up. Maybe you're just trying to get out of school. But in the right hands, the diagnosis is actually rather simple. And I'd like you to outline, Professor Scholl, how you typically diagnose a patient with Stargardt disease. So, of course, we speak to the patient uh, and yes, the symptoms that we just discussed together, such as visual acuity, loss and difficulty reading and recognizing faces. This is one part that we ask the patient about. The second is the family history. You should keep in mind, you talk about an autosomal recessively inherited condition. That means the parents are so-called obligate 
carriers, so they carry an affected allele for the disease, but they are typically not affected. And then, of course, we use the ophthalmoscope. We look at the retina, which is what Carl Stargardt did in 1909, and we see some quite typical changes of the retina that would suggest that this is the underlying diagnosis. And then, of course, we do some straightforward retinal imaging that is available in essentially every office of a retinal specialist. One would be optical coherence tomography or briefly OCT imaging of the central retina where we would see some atrophy of the outer retina. And we would also do an imaging technique called autofluorescence imaging where we would see that there are specific flecks that were also described by Carl Stargardt at the time that with this specific imaging technique really light up and make the diagnosis straightforward. So these are the most important elements of making the diagnosis. Then of course, we would draw blood and send it off for genetic diagnosis. This is quite an important topic. Maybe we can elaborate on that later in, in our discussion, but certainly nowadays it's a diagnosis that should be based on genetic testing. So this is, would be a standard of the diagnosis today. So in your opinion, oftentimes when you talk about the imaging modalities that you just mentioned, you know, patients are often initially misdiagnosed. What are the, some of the main reasons why there are misdiagnosis of Stargardt disease? There's a variety of reasons. Number one is that at least some colleagues are not familiar with the condition, which is somewhat unfortunate, of course. Uh, it's a very important condition and it's not that rare, as we discussed in the beginning. Colleagues should be familiar with the most important features of the condition. This is reason number one. Then the second is sometimes the disease does not look typical, so to speak. Mutations in ABCF4 cause a typical phenotype of Stargardt disease, but they also cause some macular conditions that before the gene was known would not have been called Stargardt because they do not look typical, so to speak, right? Now, when we have genetic diagnosis, we absolutely would call them Stargardt disease and we would rather define it along the genetic finding than what we see on the fundus on the retina of a given patient. So this is also something that makes the diagnosis nowadays a bit complex because we absolutely need genetic testing and genetic testing is now relatively common, but less common than we think or that we would wish for. And this is a limitation of making the right diagnosis. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's the idea of having the correct suspicion based on the age, the history, the findings to actually perform the genetic testing. And knowing when to perform the genetic testing is as important as everything else that we're looking at. Now, Katrina, due to the perseverance of your mother, uh, you were diagnosed with Stargardt disease. How did the healthcare professional that you saw explain the diagnosis to you? Because as a teenager and, and probably a very independent teenager, you probably had your own ideas. I don't remember it very clearly, to be perfectly honest, just, I guess, the shock of it. But I do remember that she explained it as that I wouldn't go fully blind, that I would never likely need to use a cane or a guide dog. But 
I wouldn't be able to drive. And I do remember I played a lot of sport at the time and I was in university. I was studying sport and exercise science. Played a lot of sport, particularly an Irish game called hurling, which has a very small ball with a stick and it moves very, very fast. And it's not a game for somebody who can't see very well. It's just dangerous under those circumstances. So I was having struggling a lot playing that game up to this point. And that was kind of the final nail in the coffin to my hurling career, so to speak. That was the first thing that came into my head because I suppose that was going to be the most instant impact on my life um, that I was going to have to stop playing this sport. So I just remember being really, really upset about that particular side of it. The one part I remember is like the consultant uh, made a joke and told me I would have to take up rugby instead because if I missed the ball and hit the person, it was no big deal. I know she like they were trying to lighten the situation or whatever, but it didn't help me at the time um, because in my world, my life was falling apart. Everything that I had planned out for my future in the world of sport and, and working in that area and everything, just the rug just got completely pulled from under me. I don't remember being referred to any support services or like a patient organization or anything like that. That doesn't mean I wasn't because, well, as you say, like I was a teenager, like I wouldn't have been very open to anything like that anyway. I do remember that I came across Fighting Blindness Ireland in my own Google searches a little bit further down the line. I think my mum probably was in touch with them before that, just being a lot more proactive than I would have been at the time. I didn't know that there were disability services. I didn't know that I could get lecture notes. I didn't know any of those things because you don't know them until you need to know them. So Professor Shaw, in the teenage years, you kind of described how some of the patients first learn that they may have an issue. But how does Stargardt disease progress throughout a patient's life? It is a progressive condition. It is something that the doctor needs to convey to the patient. And uh, since treatment is very limited on not existing, it's a hard thing to tell to patients uh, because the disease at best remains or is being perceived as somewhat stable, but it typically progresses and gets worse over time. We uh, initiated, implemented, conducted a large worldwide multi-center natural history study on Stargardt disease called the PROGSTAR study. PROGSTAR stands for progression of Stargardt disease. We saw patients every six months and imaged the retina, also measured visual function, and we measured the decline over time. There is definite decline over time, even in a relatively short period of, uh, let's say, two years, and it, it's clearly measurable. Uh, we did the study not for proving that it's a progressive condition because we knew that and it's a known fact, but we wanted to uh, establish measures that would allow us to monitor this progression and prove that there is progression in a short period of time and also something that we could use if and when we have treatment to prove that the treatment actually shows efficacy. It is progressive. It almost inevitably leads to legal blindness. So when Katrina was first diagnosed, she mentioned the gut punch. And I think the gut punch, truly this idea that we have no current treatment to cure Stargardt disease. So as a healthcare professional, what do you tell patients about managing the disease? Is there anything they can do to slow progression? There are two recommendations we make. Recommendation number one, they should limit the exposure to very bright light. Why is that? 
because in animal experiments, we see that if these animals are raised in darkness, they do not develop the disease. Actually, if people, it's dark out, if they study, if they read, of course, with some disability, but then they need especially good light conditions. So they should use bright light in the house, but you cannot compare that light level to sunlight. So a bright light for reading a book would still be most likely a hundred thousand times less bright than uh, sunlight when you are outside on a sunny day. That's recommendation number one. Recommendation number two is do not supplement vitamin A. I'm not saying you should restrict your diet, but do not supplement vitamin A. There are patients that read about their disease. They read about, oh, the retina is affected. The retina needs vitamin A. Therefore, I supplement vitamin A actually can sometimes be difficult to avoid supplementing vitamin A, but many patients take pills and they simply should not do that because this is another animal experiment observation is that vitamin A and excessive vitamin A may lead to higher speed of progression in the disease. Those two recommendations I give to my patients and they are both based on animal experiments. Now, Katrina, when you were first diagnosed, you, you said that at the time, you, you really had very little uh, in terms of knowledge about the disease and, and where to go with the disease. And in modern days with the internet, it, it may become a little bit easier, but I would love to hear sort of how you find useful some of these other resources, including Fighting Blindness Ireland. I suppose definitely Fighting Blindness Ireland was probably the, one of the first places I went to because I suppose I was doing a science degree at the time and they're a medical research charity and that side of it obviously really interested me that even though there was no treatment, there's a lot of research going on. And I suppose very encouraging for Stargardt disease, you know, there's a massive amount of research into Stargardt disease in particular. Fighting Blindness also offers counselling, which I didn't avail of at the time. And I mean, I definitely should have. And anyone that I speak to in a similar situation, I will always give that advice to speak to a, a psychotherapist or a counsellor and just get some help in dealing with it because we're just not equipped <laughs> as as humans to, to deal with something like that without um, some kind of support. And I would always speak to healthcare professionals about, I suppose, how to deliver a diagnosis and things to bear in mind um, when delivering a diagnosis, you know, that you are giving this person life-changing news that, you know, that you'll always be that person who gave them that news and how to make it a little bit easier. And I always do give that advice, you know, that give them something to leave with, um, whether it's a leaflet or something, you know, I know that's not something people like to do to give something to read to somebody they've just told, you know, who maybe can't read, still see very well or, or those things. But, you know, somebody else will be able to read it for them, but just give them something to leave with. They're not leaving your office empty handed with no idea where to go um, because inevitably people will Google and it's not always the smartest thing to do in terms of the information that you get. It's not reliable. So, yeah, being able to direct somebody to a patient organisation or to a reliable source of information is absolutely just so, so helpful. And then I also, I was referred to an organisation, the National Council for the Blind in Ireland, who would give more practical support. So things like a magnifier, like a mini telescope, some binoculars, all of those kind of things, just on a day to day, practical, making daily tasks easier and things like that. That was very helpful as well. 
Yeah, Katrina and her family and, and all of us in the healthcare profession are, are looking to you, Professor Scholl, and we're very interested in your research on Stargardt disease in terms of future treatments. Maybe you can tell us what some of the things you're working on as well as others in this field. I'm very happy to, and it's uh, really my favorite topic. But before I do, I would like to absolutely agree with you, Katrina, uh, what you just said about patient organizations and what a spectacular job they are doing, such as the organization Ireland, uh, such as, as an example, Foundation Fighting Blindness or Retina Swiss in Switzerland or ProRetina in Germany and so forth. So putting together information that is reliable, that is being supervised by specialists like Professor Kaiser or myself, it's really valid and at the same time is understandable for patients and their relatives. So I'm now getting, of course, to the research topic. And before I start, I would like to explain why uh, Stargard disease is one of the best researched conditions in medicine, not just in ophthalmology. And to illustrate that, we should keep in mind that for Stargard disease, we have medical therapy, pharmacotherapy, or like, like pills or injectables. We have gene therapy, and we have stem cell therapy in clinical trials. So not just preclinical, not just in animals, but these treatment approaches have reached the clinical stage where patients are being treated within trials. Having said that, the stem cell therapy field is still not really mature enough to allow to restore vision. And there's a lot of hope for patients currently, and they rely on stem cell therapy or IPS therapy mostly to really restore vision, to repair everything that was lost. So far, we have not seen that, but there is research that really aimed to replace the support layer of the retina, the layer underneath the retina, the retinal pigment epithelium, and it was used for Stargardt disease and age-related macular degeneration. And in these trials, at least safety could be established and, uh, and vision uh, stayed the same. There were some cases where we saw some minor uh, improvement. So this is quite important uh, uh, for some patients may sound like uh, a disappointment because it was not fully restored vision with this therapy yet, but at least uh, th this type of therapy at least could be established as a relatively safe procedure. Same with gene therapy. So unfortunately, the ABCF4 gene is, is a very large gene and more than a thousand mutations have been reported in that specific gene. And because the gene is so large, the standard approach by using a carrier such as adeno-associated virus, AAV, cannot be used or cannot at least be immediately used to simply carry the healthy gene and bring it to the target cells. So there must be some modifications of that approach. Many people are working on that, uh, including our institute in Basel. We have a, a new approach, uh, it's called base editing, that we are, that we are developing uh, at, at IOB. Uh, but these approaches are more complicated than the so-called typical gene therapy approaches that have been successfully developed in the past. And of course, pharmacotherapy. And that's the largest topic here because this is the most advanced uh, approach by far. 
much more advanced than gene therapy and stem cell therapy. There is a variety of molecules, of compounds, of pharmacotherapy in development. We now talk about about 10 plus clinical trials in Stargardt disease in the clinical stage worldwide where patients are being treated with new compounds with the aim to bring these compounds to the market. Well, on behalf of Katrina, patients with Stargardt's disease, and, and those of us who are in retina, thank you for all the work. This is a very exciting time with inherited retinal degeneration, such as Stargardt's disease. I'm going to leave the last word to Katrina to tell us what are your hopes for the future of people living with Stargardt disease? Gosh, um, it's a big question. <laughs> I think, well, personally, one thing that I would love is certainty. At the moment, I suppose, I just don't know how much worse my vision is going to get. I mean, it's quite stable. Is it going to stay that way? Is it going to get a lot worse? When would that happen? Like, I would love something that could halt progression in terms of a therapy. That would be kind of my first hope, I suppose, at a, I suppose, trying not to be too optimistic or too full of hope. If I even had that, that would be amazing. Obviously, on top of that, something that would give me back some vision would be my, I suppose, my realistic hope for, you know, maybe not too far in the future. Something that could maybe give me back just a little bit of extra acuity. Like, and I'm not, I don't mean a lot. I mean, you know, maybe an extra line on the chart. That might sound maybe a little negative, but like an extra line on, on, the, on the chart would change my life an awful lot. And then I have two small kids. My hope would be that if they, I mean, touch wood that they won't have Stargardt's, but if they did develop it, that by the time they got to adulthood, that there would be something really tangible, really, I suppose that a cure, the word cure, but, you know, maybe that there would be a cure for Stargardt disease, you know, in their lifetime if they developed it. Well, thank you, Katrina. I also want to thank Professor Scholl for his time today and for all of our listeners for sticking with us today on the Eyes on Retina podcast. Don't forget to click subscribe or follow to ensure you don't miss our next episode.